0: What's up, everybody? I'm Sarah. I'm Ashana. I'm Sam.
1: And I'm Bobby. And this is Speaking of Murders. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Speaking of Murders. Uh, We have two other podcasts. Make sure you're checking those out. Speaking of Missing Persons and Unsolved Mayhem, don't miss out on those. Those are awesome. And uh, I guess we'll just hop right in. Sarah's going to be telling us our case today. And from what I understand, we're talking about a, a serial killer. Yes. A lesser known serial killer.
0: I had never heard of him.
1: All right, so what's a guy, gal? Is it a female serial killer? No.
0: No, it's a guy named Charles Albright.
1: That sounds really familiar. That sounds really, I feel like I might have heard about this guy before.
0: Maybe. Charles was born on August 10th, 1933 in Amarillo, Texas. He was put up for adoption at birth, and was adopted at three weeks old by a couple named Dell and Fred Albright.
1: I have always thought Dell was a really cool name.
0: They spell it weird, like they add. They have a e. She has like an extra e at the end, which That makes sense. My it's spell check did not.
1: Like a shortened version of Adele, they just got yeah. rid of the uh
0: Fred owned a grocery store and Dell was a school teacher. They lived in Dallas, Texas in a very nice neighborhood called Oak Cliff. Which, remember that because it comes back later. I didn't find very much information about his father but his mother, Dell. oh my goodness. She's talked about a lot. She was considered an extreme person.
1: I feel like that's pretty common for serial killers to have a very intense mother yes it's usually the mom
2: has some kind of extreme personality right or
1: like oh you looked at a girl let's scrub you down with bleach or ammonia (laughs) or some weird shit like that you had impure thoughts let's clean out your ears until the q-tip goes all the way through to the other fucking side
0: (laughs) do you know by experience bobby no
1: (laughs) My mom was super chill.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, she was considered a very extreme person. Very frugal and afraid of germs. She loved her son and wanted to protect him as much as she could. But like I said, she was extreme. When Charles was less than a year old, Del locked him in a dark room once. To punish him for chewing on her tape measure, when he would not take a nap, she would tie him to his bed, and she would spank him for the smallest things like not drinking his milk. And very she sh- make
1: him shit out in the backyard.
0: No, very strangely, which no one really understands why. But for sometimes she would. Dress him like a girl and make him play with dolls.
1: Okay.
3: This doesn't sound extreme. It sounds
1: abusive. No. True story. This is actually, this comes from a family member of mine that I know who um was raised, his parents had a bakery, and him and his sister looked so similar that they would dress him up like a girl and put the two of them out in front of the family bakery. To try and get more people to come into the bakery and buy breads. I don't know why they thought that, you know, having twin girls was different than a little boy and a little girl.
0: Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's very weird.
2: But I don't know. It sounds like she views him more of like a toy, like a doll, than a living, breathing child. I don't know.
0: Also, Charles was always trying to, like, escape the yard. So, like, so much so that he would ask people walking by to lift him over the fence.
2: Yeah, I wonder why. I I wouldn't <laughs> Honestly, guess that
3: it's being tied to a bed or put in a dark room or dressed like a little girl from, or anything.
1: From the way that she treats him and the situations that you're describing, I'm truly shocked that he doesn't, like, bark at people who get too close to the fence Or other dogs, because that's how she treats him.
0: Yeah, well, she still technically treated him like a dog, because when he would do things like this, it would piss her off, so she would tie him to the porch. Okay.
1: Put out a bowl of water and some wet
0: food? I don't know, Bobby. Jesus. Like I said, though, she was also a very clean person. She would change his clothes multiple times a day. And she had this, like, irrational fear that he would touch dog feces and get polio. So she took him to a hospital when he was young to show him polio patients in their iron lungs. Pretty much to be like, this is what's going to happen if you're a dirty person.
2: Okay, yeah, traumatize him. Really sink Uh, it in there.
1: And he won't forget.
3: The multiple clothes changes, okay. I have a child that does that on their own and the laundry. (laughs) The amount of laundry.
0: Yeah, but she does it because she just wants to look pretty.
2: Yeah, she just wants to put dress up.
3: That's what I'm saying. She does it by herself.
0: But the amount of washing
2: She's gotta change with the vibe, you know, with her mood. Whatever she is feeling in that second.
0: Her clothes are never in her drawer. Del wanted her son to grow up smart and to treat women like a gentleman would.
2: To make... When the only female figure, or the main female figure in his life is treating him like complete dog shit.
0: But she's technically still being very loving and doting oh, on him. Oh, the mixed
2: signal's gotta be... That's gotta and be And very intense.
0: protective of him. Even though she's harming him, she doesn't allow anyone else. To him, that's normal. Yes. Got it. To make the smart happen, she pushed him at home with his schoolwork. And together, he, like them working together, he skipped two grades. And breezed through the rest of school. He was very gifted, actually, as... A boy, he could play piano. He was a really good tap dancer. And from a very young age, he could name like all the constellations. He was very polite. And appro- and appre- he actually appreciated that his mother taught him manners. She taught him to speak politely about other people or say nothing at all. She wanted him to respect women. Especially when it came to sex. And to accomplish this, she would lecture him about the way of his father. She would tell him that his father acted greedy with sex. And that if Fred saw her in their room in just her bra and panties, he would try to grab her and get her to do things she didn't want to do and she was not going to have this with Charles. She was going to make sure he never did things like this to women. She went so far as to even go on any dates that he went on, calling the girl's parents to assure them that nothing inappropriate would happen to their daughter. Creepy.
2: Okay. I mean, chaperoning was a very, like, a... Very big thing, like back then, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> that seems <laughs> extreme
0: for chaperoning.
2: <laughs> feels like a lot.
0: Well, at around eleven years old, his parents bought him a gun. He would use it to kill like small animals and birds, and this led Dell to introduce Charles to taxidermy. She enrolled him in a mail order class.
2: It's always like some kind of weapon given at a very young age, and then they get into taxidermy.
0: So you think I should worry considering the fact that my son has been keeping plastic knives under his pillow (laughs) since he was like one?
2: God, if you took that knife.
0: (laughs) He would throw the biggest tantrum, and all he ever wanted was Play-Doh so he could cut it. I just want to cut Play-Doh. Still to this day, the amount of fake swords and lightsabers that nerf guns, it's
2: unreal.
3: Yeah, I just think that's a nerdy thing, though.
2: Yeah, you haven't given him, like, you know what? Here you go. Here's he- a real gun. Go shoot some animals with it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Of course, Dell showed him, Charles, how to use knives to Cut open the animal skulls, spoons to scoop out their brains, and scalpels to cut out their eyes. She even skinned the first, like defeathered the first bird for him to show him like how delicate you had to do this. Charles spent hours perfecting his taxidermy pieces. He wanted them to look as living as possible. And his favorite thing to do was to go to the local taxidermy shop to look at all the glass eyes. He wanted to collect them like other little boys collected marbles or rocks. The problem was, like I said, Del was frugal. Like people who knew her said, they never even saw her wear a new dress. She bought all of her clothes secondhand, all of his clothes secondhand, and they were actually well off. They weren't poor. So she wasn't about to spend money on glass eyeballs. So she taught him how to use buttons instead. And she would display these animals in their living room in a china cabinet.
1: With their creepy-ass button eyes.
0: Yes. By the age of 13, Charles already had a pretty good... Criminal record for petty theft and aggravated assault, but Dell tried to protect him and make those things go away. She, like I said, she wanted to shield him from everything bad. He graduated from high school at the age of fifteen, Wow, and enrolled in at Texas or North Texas University. He wanted to be a doctor. This dream was put on hold, however. When a year later, Charles was caught by police with stolen cash, a rifle and two handguns, which landed him in jail for a year. So 16 years old.
1: How'd they know it was stolen?
0: I have no idea. That's the the times that he gets in trouble. There's not like very much in-depth detail about it. He did have to drop out of college at this point, because he was in jail. Once he was released, Charles decided he was going to try his hand at college again, but this time he moved to Arkansas and enrolled in the Arkansas State Teachers College, and he majored in pre-med studies. So he really, like, wanted to be a doctor. He was very charming, charismatic, and popular. But he was also considered the class clown, like, pulling pranks on a lot of his friends. He met a girl named Betty Hester while in school, and she would end up becoming his wife, and they would have a daughter together. Now, while enrolled in this college, he stole keys and got caught. With a bunch of stolen stuff from the school.
2: So he was a klepto. He couldn't help yeah. himself but the steal shit.
0: And was expelled. But Charles believed he still deserved his degree. And back when he had went to North Texas University, from them he had stolen like the paper that you needed to like forge degrees not forged them, he forged them, but he had like stolen diploma the, papers? the diploma papers from the Texas University to create falsified documents saying he graduated
2: college. Gotcha. Even though he didn't, he went to jail. Right. <laughs> he created...
0: A, a
1: college f- of sorts.
2: Well, yeah, I guess, in a
0: sense. He created a fictitious bachelor's degree and master's degree, and... He used these degrees to become a school teacher in Arkansas.
1: So they weren't degrees of
0: criminology?
2: Mm Mm-mm.
1: That would have been funny if they were criminology degrees.
2: Like the guy. Like Brian Koberger,
0: Yeah. Who was going to school to be a criminologist and murdered the girls at the college.
1: Was that that guy you were telling me about yesterday? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Anyway, he was caught, of course, and fired. So he moved back to Dallas to be closer to his family. But I feel like at this point, his mom was, like, super disappointed in him.
2: Yeah. Well, I would say she,
0: so. They kind of stopped speaking to each other because he was not turning she... out to be the man she wanted him to be.
2: Yeah. It, I, like, it felt like she would probably disown him. Like, yeah. those were, th- like, mm-mm. Uh-uh. Yeah. You're not mine anymore.
0: Although they did help him get a house well technically they gave him one of their rental properties to live in because by this point his parents had owned a bunch of property and rental houses smart once back in dallas charles had many jobs like it said he could not keep a job for more than two months at a time He attended church regularly, and to everyone around him, he was the picture of happiness. He was described as a sort of Renaissance man by people that knew him because he was fluent in French and Spanish. He was a masterful painter. He could woo you with his skills on the piano, and he could recite poetry by Keats. Mm -hmm. He also knew. Latin really well.
2: Well, wow.
0: despite what everyone thought of Charles, he was not the great guy they made him out to be. At the age of 51, while going to the church, Charles met a family with a teenage daughter. Charles became obsessed with this 14-year-old girl. He bought her family's family steak dinners, he dressed as Santa at Christmas time bringing the family gifts. All of this was to get close to her.
2: Gross. Oh, the Santa's so gross.
0: When it was revealed that Charles had been sexually assaulting this young girl, her parents and the church wanted to keep it all quiet. Of course. When he was arrested, he did plead guilty to the charges, but there were some things that said he kind of told the judge he only did it because he felt obligated to, not because he was really guilty.
2: Oh, <laughs> I had a different. Understanding I went the same way of like obligated to sexually assault. No, like now? he was obligated
0: fuck? to plead guilty because the church and her parents were pretty much making him, gotcha. not because he was actually guilty. Right. Okay. And because it was like a whole thing, everybody wanted to keep hush hush. He only got ten years probation.
2: Oh my god. Okay.
0: He went on with his life like nothing happened. No one believed he was capable of molesting a child. They thought the whole thing was a misunderstanding. I'm not really sure if this is the incident that ended his marriage, but he did get divorced around this time. By 1985, Charles had a whole new life. He had a girlfriend that. Absolutely loved him and thought he was the greatest, sweetest guy in the whole world. But he was also frequently visiting the red light district of Dallas. Makes sense. Nobody knew anything about it. In December of 1990, the body of Mary Pratt was found in an underdeveloped lower class area in southern Dallas. She was naked except for a t-shirt and bra both had been pushed up to expose her breasts her eyes were closed her face and chest were badly bruised she had been beaten before she was shot in the head with a 45 caliber bullet the person who found her like lived in this neighborhood and was so horrified by like the fact that this poor girl was laying in the middle of this yard naked and exposed that he ran in and grabbed a bed sheet to cover her body.
2: Like he didn't want anybody else to walk, like walk up to it. He, to her, yes. To see and, her. Sorry.
0: Yeah. It was more of like a, this poor girl. I need to cover her kind of a deal. Mm-hmm. Like anyway, an officer on the scene recognized the victim right away as Mary Pratt She was a 33-year-old, she was 33 years old and a veteran prostitute who worked out of the Star Motel in Oak Cliff. Oh, it's hometown. Mm Mm-hmm. In Oak Cliff, at this time, prostitution was a big thing. Police on the scene were surprised by Mary's death because they rarely had a sex worker be killed in this area. Mary was well-liked. She did not ever really have extra money using most of what she earned on drugs. She did not buy like sexy clothes like the other sex workers in the area. She literally stood on the corner in jeans and a t-shirt and a tennis shoes. Some nights, Mary would ask one of her dates to drive her to her parents' house in the suburb of Lancaster. Her parents were older and retired, and they didn't even have an idea she was a prostitute or a drug addict when she was murdered. It was quickly decided by investigators that Mary had been killed somewhere else and dumped where she was found. But they had no witnesses, no murder weapon, very little forensic evidence, no fingerprints, and no motive for why she would have been killed. The detectives in charge of this case like drove to the medical examiner's office with her body to watch her autopsy be performed. They were kind of hoping this would give them something to go on like mm-hmm. if the medical examiner found something. They knew her cause of death was going to be a gunshot wound to the head. And while the medical examiner like began her exam on Mary's body, she's like noting things like tattoos, the needle tracks on her arms. And then she opens Mary's right eye, then her left and found that Mary's eyes were missing from their sockets. I knew
2: it. I had Jeepers Creepers vibes from the second you said he liked glass eyes.
0: Her eyes had been removed so carefully that both her upper and lower eyelids were undisturbed. This meant that the killer had to know how to slip a knife around the eye, making sure not to injure any adjoining skin, then cut six major muscles holding each eye in the socket, as well as the optical nerve, which apparently is as tough as
2: rope. Then how the fuck did they get pulled out? Like yeah, I was just saying, like, what is this two Mondays in a row about eyeballs? What are y'all doing to my eyes? <laughs> I, if it's as tough as rope, how the fuck did they, they just, burn? I
3: don't know, those women must have been strong. They were French. Fits of rage, I guess. That adrenaline. They don't know what we're talking about, so cut all that out, but...
2: Do how mean? do they
0: not? They listen to missing their... If they listened
2: to last Monday. Oh, okay.
0: Well, then, yeah. How the (laughs) fuck? When Mary was brought in with her eyelids shut, it was literally impossible to tell her eyes were missing until they opened her eyelids.
2: That's insane.
0: Whoever did this had to have a lot of practice removing eyes without causing any damage. The investigators contacted the FBI's Violent Crimes Program Because they have a computer system that, like, tracks all the nation's most unusual crimes. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So, these detectives wanted to know, like, if there was any other women out there that had had their eyes cut out with such precision. And there was not. The FBI got no match. The second victim, Susan Peterson was a 27-year-old sex worker and was found on the same road as Mary Pratt, she was also mostly naked. She had been shot in the head, chest, and stomach. Oh, wow. And like Mary, her eyelids were closed. Her body was discovered on the other end of the road from Mary Pratt, so it was just outside the city limits. It was a completely, it fell under a completely different jurisdiction. Like, the first murder was done by the Dallas County Police Department, and this one was going to go to the Dallas County Sheriff's Department. The case was given to a detective named Larry Oliver. He had not heard anything about Mary Pratt's murder, and it was the same deal. They took the body to the med- medical examiner. He went with the body. She opened the eyelids one by one and was like, She's missing her eyes. Same exact way. They were removed with just as much precision as Mary's eyes had been. How they got lucky is that it was the same medical examiner. Oh. Okay. okay. And she told Larry Oliver about the case two months earlier that was very similar to Susan Peterson's. So Detective Oliver did some digging, and within 24 hours, he was making the trip to speak with the detectives assigned to Mary Pratt's case. Soon, both departments were working together on, this ca- on the cases. They w- were very careful not to call the murders serial killings. At the time, because they didn't want a public, yeah, outcry. They called him, they called them repeaters, which I think it's pretty much the same thing. You might as well just say serial killer.
2: Yeah, it's like you're trying to
3: (laughs) insinuate that there is one, but not
0: quite yet.
2: (laughs) Right, like you're trying to say it. Which I mean, technically, (laughs)
0: with just two bodies, it's not a serial killer yet. No. They also wanted to keep this quiet because they didn't want a spotlight put on the, st- the star motel because that's where both of the victims uh. l- were living and working from. And it kind of pisses me off because their idea was like, if we put a spotlight on this motel, then we're going to make the killer nervous and he's going to move on to a different area. Mm-hmm. And we need him to keep picking up women here.
2: Yeah, but they weren't, like, doing stakeouts there, like, watching it? No. Oh, God. Okay.
0: Now, their supervisors, the, the detective's supervisors, was like, mm, no. And they overruled the detective, saying it was more important to warn this community, even if they were just sex workers, they said. Plus, they believed that telling the media what was happening would lead to cl- more clues. Right. The one thing that was kept from the news was that the victims were missing eyes. Yeah, but someone that's something only the killer would know. But someone did leak it to reporters that their faces were mutilated, which created a media frenzy. And a detective all all one of the detectives would say was Yeah, and he used, like, precision-like skills to do this mutilation. But they wouldn't give what was actually mutilated. Okay, so now we're going to talk about these two beat cops named Officer John Matthews and Regina Smith. They had worked in the area around the Star Motel for a very long time. And they knew a lot of these sex workers. They described Susan Peterson as the most beautiful sex worker in that whole area, even though, like, drugs and the lifestyle had taken their toll on her. They said she was tough, even fighting back with them when they would try to move her off of her corner. She would fight other sex workers if they got too close to her corner. On a good night, she would get 10 to 12 dates a night. And I'm calling them dates because I hate the fucking word trick.
2: Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean.
0: I think that's so old. Yes. The officers knew that if this killer was able to get Susan, none of these other women were safe. Because she was like the most scrappy, like, I ain't scared of nobody type of person. I
2: guess that's why she was shot three times instead of just once.
0: Probably.
2: They believed that she
0: would have had to know the person that did this and that they caught her off guard because they said otherwise she would have pulled out her razor and, like, fucked this dude up. Yeah. Days after the murder of Susan, when the two officers pulled up to the hotel, the sex workers, like, surrounded them. They wanted to help and give the officers any information they could about the men they were dealing with every day. Officer Smith told them all to stay off the streets for their safety. But since both of the first victims were white girls, the black sex workers felt like they were still safe and kind of used it as an opportunity t- to try to make more money. because. They were like, we're not getting targeted. It's these white women. One of the sex workers named Veronica Rodriguez had been going around telling everyone that would listen to her, including Matthews and Smith, all kinds of stories since the murders happened. At first, she said she witnessed Mary Pratt's murder then said she just met a guy who was bragging about it and then changed her story completely and said she knew nothing about it. She told a story that she was in a field with Mary Pratt and the killer to have a threesome when the man knocked her out and raped her. When she came to, he was shooting Mary, so she ran as fast as she could to a nearby house. But then she would take that. She would, like, change the story a little bit.
2: With every person she talked to?
0: Well, most people just thought she was crazy from all the drugs she was on. But Matthews believed her because she never changed the basic story of being in the field and watching Mary get killed. She just kind of changed parts where it would give her more pity, depending on who she was talking to. Matthews and Smith believed that the man that helped her after this attack, his name was Axton Schindler. He might know something about it, but they kind of reported it to the homicide detectives, but there was nothing else they could really do. And later it came out that these detectives never received this tip about Axton Schindler. They said through all the other chaos that was going on with the case it must have just slipped through the cracks so one thing about matthews and smith's belief was true susan had known her killer charles was a regular of hers so much so that she considered him her sugar daddy and used his name with bail bondsmen in case she skipped bail like writing on the bail bonds that he was her best friend oh wow no. and she would call him when she needed to be bailed out and he would do it Mm-hmm. charles may have also known mary pratt even before she was a sex worker in the late 80s mary had lived in a south dallas neighborhood where charles's parents owned cheap rental property he was also living in one of those rental houses at the time and some things said that she met Charles through a friend of hers. Gotcha. Other sex workers would later say that when she became a sex worker, Charles was one of her regular customer or clients. Mary had told them like quote, old man Albright was a good trick that was willing to pay a little more than the going rate. So she had told other people like he's a good guy. And he pays me more than other guys. Gotcha. Okay. These two were not the only sex workers Charles was close to. There were some that he just had platonic relationships with. That he would pick up, hang out with, get food, then take them back to the motel. Never even asking them for sex. Others he would make actual sex appointments with. So they had scheduled appointments. Which... Mary and Susan were two of those girls that he would make actual appointments with. Things seemed to spiral out of control for Charles after the death of his parents. He inherited $96,000 and all the homes and property they owned. Holy shit. Now, his mom was still not speaking to him when she, before she passed away. Oh, boy. But him and his dad, after she passed away, apparently started having a great relationship. It was like the first time in his life they had any kind of relationship.
3: It sounds like that was because his mom wouldn't let him have one.
0: And it was said that when Dell passed away that Charles made sure she got a brand new dress. And even said it was the first time he had ever seen her wear a new dress. Anyway. In the early morning hours of March 20th, 1991, the third victim was found. This time the killer had changed his tactics. He took a woman named Shirley Williams, who was a black woman that worked at the Avalon Motel as a maid during the day and was a sex worker at night. Shirley was found dumped on a residential street, a half block from the elementary school in the heart of Oak Cliff. As children walked to school, they could see Shirley's naked body slumped against the curb. There was an unopened condom next to her body, and she too was missing her eyes. Oh, my lord. This time, her autopsy would show that her eye removal had been rushed, like he had been in a hurry. They found the tip of an x blade embedded into the skin of her right eye like Uh near her right eye okay
3: if you've ever used those breaking the tip off of an exacto knife of any kind is super easy yeah it takes very little pressure to snap that
0: tip they still had no witnesses though no murder weapon or fingerprints on top of that the killer had moved locations and changed his bit his victim profile The Star Motel became a ghost town after Shirley was murdered. The sex workers told Matthews and Smith they were leaving town or they were getting out of the business altogether. The ones that could not leave huddled together on one corner to try to look out for each other, and apparently there was even a guy who lived down there, like on that corner, that would help protect them. I'm amazed. By what? The sex workers and how they, like, came together. Yeah. Now, there was one girl named Brenda White. She was 17 years old, and she always worked alone on the street corner in front of a church. Matthews and Smith decided to stop and warn her of the danger she was in. when she told them about being attacked a couple days before and having to mace the man to get away from him. She said the man was driving a dark-colored station wagon. He was husky-looking, white with salt-and-pepper hair, wearing cowboy boots and blue jeans. Brenda wanted him to take her to a hotel for their transaction, but he said no that he had a spot they could use. But Brenda had a rule that she never went anywhere with a new customer other than a motel. So she told him to let her out of the car. She's like, no, you either take me to a motel or this ain't happening. That's smart. Paper trail. She said his face changed in that moment and he became super angry and screamed at her. And this is a direct quote that she said from him. He screamed, I hate whores. I'm going to kill all you motherfucking whores. And he reached to grab her. But before he could, she maced him, threw open the door and jumped from the car. Like
2: breaking one of her shoes. If you hate them so fucking much, like why are you involving yourself with them? Why are you paying them money to do things for you and taking care of them and becoming their best friend? I don't know.
0: Uh, Like with the green with Gary Ridgway, he hated them in his mind because he thought they were ruining where he lived, which
3: still just which is
0: what he claimed, which is bullshit. He just was a murderer. This guy really has no reason. Matthews and Smith could not help but think that this was the same person that Veronica had talked about. Right. So the next day, they ran the address they had for Axton Schindler, who Veronica had said saved her or whatever, through their database. His name did not pop up for that address, though. It was the name Fred Albright. Their search led them to find out that Fred Albright also owned property on a street called Cotton Valley, This was the neighborhood where Mary and Susan's bodies were found. With more digging, they found that Fred Albright was dead. So this led them to his son, Charles Albright. The officer that was helping them said a couple weeks before he had received a phone call from a woman that would not identify herself. He said that she told him... That she was friends with Mary Pratt, and through her, she m- had met a man that was very nice. But he had an odd love for eyes, and he kept an ex- he kept exacto blades in his attic. She said the guy's name was Charles Albright. So if Matthews and Smith wouldn't have went to this other officer asking for help to run this address, they would have never. Gotten all that information. Found out that this person had called and been like, I think you should look into Charles Albright. At first, the officers believed that Charles and Axton were working together. So they pulled up all the information they could find on Charles. He looked just like the man Brenda had described, and he had a pretty good criminal record. They took their findings to the detectives who told them to take a photo lineup to Brenda and Veronica to see if they picked out Charles. So that's what they did. Brenda picked him out right away as the man who attacked her. Matthew said when Veronica got to the picture of Charles, she became visibly shaken and refused to say anything. So she was brought to the station to talk to the actual detectives without her they would have had nothing to prove charles was a killer because according to her she saw him kill mary right once at the station she picked charles's photo out of the lineup so at 2:30 a.m. on march 22nd a team of tactical officers burst through the door of charles's home and arrested him the whole time he never said a single word and his girlfriend was like he had been with her for a really long time She did the typical, what do you mean my man is killing people? There's no way. You have the wrong guy. Right. Charles pretty much stayed quiet from then on. He refused to confess to anything. He acted like he had never even heard any of these girls' names before. Searching his home multiple times also didn't really bring them the things they needed to have a slam dunk case. They searched his house, even using, like, the FBI has the machine that can look through walls. hmm They were trying to find the eyeballs or the right. murder
2: weapons, and they found neither. Well, I mean, he just stumbled on a bunch of rental properties. Like, yeah. why take it back to your house?
0: He had all of his guns, like, hidden in a compartment behind the fireplace. Okay. But the gun that had killed the three women was not there. Things got even worse for the prosecution when Veronica decided to testify on the side of the defense, saying that she was coerced to pick his photo and that she had never even met Charles before.
2: I guess she just is terrified. She was like terrified.
0: terrified. Like they said she was so strung out and terrified that she just didn't want to. I feel like she just didn't want to be involved. Yeah. They moved forward with their case anyway because days after Charles was arrested, the city's forensic lab reported that hairs found on the bodies of the murdered women were similar to hair samples taken from Charles's head and pubic area. Now, they say hair isn't like a perfect match like a fingerprint, but the prosecution was like, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to see if we can get a conviction with this. Then the lab took like blankets from his car and ran hair tests on samples found on them that matched or was similar to Mary and Susan's hair. They then found hair in his vacuum cleaner that was similar to Shirley Williams. Their case was made even better when another sex worker named Tina Connolly came forward and said Charles was one of her regulars and she said she had never seen him cruising in the area at night except the night that Shirley Williams was killed. She said he always came to that area during the daytime. She led Matthews and Smith to a field Charles would take her for sex where they found Shirley's missing yellow raincoat and a blanket. Hairs from both of those items matched Charles as well. The defense tried to point the finger at Axton Schindler, even though there was nothing that could tie him to this case. Like, none of the sex workers even recognized Axton. Like, they had never seen him before. He was just some innocent dude who had helped Veronica when she ran from that field. But when they showed these sex workers pictures of Charles, almost all of them knew him. Hmm. Surprising. Super surprising. The biggest thing that helped Axton was the fact that everyone who knew him said he did not have the skills to remove eyeballs the way they had been removed. Right. He was described as being a really good guy. He was a truck driver. He was not visiting the site. He was not doing anything wrong. Yeah. On December 19th, 1991... The jury came back with a guilty verdict and a life sentence for Charles. Charles never spoke on his behalf and denied he was involved with these murders until his death on August 22nd, 2020. Wow. The whole time he was in prison, he said that Axton Schindler was the murderer
2: and he was innocent. And yet, I'm sure no other women went missing and murdered. Nope. After he went to prison. No. And that's your
0: story of the eyeball killer, because that's what the media dubbed him.
2: Not Jeepers Creepers? No.
0: He oh, was dubbed man. the eyeball killer. They failed on that one. Yeah, they did. Right? Well, the Jeepers <laughs> Creepers wasn't out in the 90s. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but the song was. The song yeah. is old as hell. Yeah, but. I mean, think of all the names they give serial killers they d- they're not very original. no, no, they're not no, I mean, the co-ed killer, okay, you got that name because you killed co-eds? No, I know. the green river killer, okay, Because you used the green river killer for a l- or the green river for a little bit. Now, that's- this guy, the eyeball killer, yeah, that is real old nineteen thirty eight yeah, yeah, that song is old. They could have called him Peepers Creepers. Creepers. <laughs> <laughs> they could have. It would have been a lot better than The Eyeball Killer, because to me, that doesn't it makes make it sense. sound like you're killing, like you killed them by. Through their eyeballs. Through their eyeballs, and you didn't. That's really
3: interesting, though,
0: because he
3: killed, what, in the 90s? Yeah. Creepers. Creepers. The movie was re- released in 2001.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's nothing to do with it.
2: Um, no, it's, uh, oh my gosh. It's based off of a different story. Yeah. A totally different situation.
0: A situation we can talk about? You know, I don't know. We'll look
2: into it. It's been a long time.
1: All right. Well, if you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you're letting us know. Leave us five stars. Leave a review. Hit that subscribe button. Share it with a family member, a friend, a coworker, whoever. Um, It helps us get out to more people. That's uh, a great way to support the show. Uh, If you want to go a step further than that and support the show a little more, we have a Patreon where we're putting bonus episodes out every other weekend. We're also putting out some additional content during the weeks, just kind of some after after show chit-chat about uh, a little bit more about the cases. So go there, check that out.
2: Cheapers Creepers is about uh, Dennis DePew, that guy. Sweet. Yeah. I'll tell the story. All
1: right. Um,
2: Then can we watch Cheapers Creepers? (laughs) (laughs) That movie.
1: And uh, like I said at the beginning, don't forget to go check out our other shows, Speaking of Missing Persons and Unsolved Mayhem. Am I forgetting anything?
2: Nope. I don't think so.
1: All right. We'll see y'all back next week.